Welcome to your mandatory wellness session. I am your host? Sure. A noob. And I'm your other host, Samir. I'm a little more confident than you, I think, yeah. about this. I don't know. I was thinking, should we have some sort of punchy other title? I'm your instructor. I'm oh, that's your true. That makes sense. Guide. I'm your doula. <laughs> you know, I don't I'm, know. I'm, I'm your spirit guide to this mandatory <laughs> yeah. wellness session. I am your spirit animal, as it turns out. A lot of people didn't know. It was me all along. I'm your yogi, Samir. Yeah. And yogis. I'm your yogi bear. A new. <laughs> it's like a regular yogi, but with more hair. <laughs> Which is not the usual case, but you've shaved. It's actually, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it before, but I feel like a lot of the representations of yogis are like very hairless. Yeah. But they're all like South Asian, so they obviously are like shaving and yeah. relaxing. With a notable, one notable exception. Yogi Bear. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Or Yogi Bear Up, for that matter. Also a hairy gentleman. And not South Asian, as far as I know. Oh, uh, you might be wrong. <laughs> There's no way to know. <laughs> Who can say? Who can, Who can say? say? Certainly not Google. All right. So, Anoop, how have you been? I, I continue. I continue to exist, which is what I said last time. It is. It word is. for word. I'm good. I'm good. You know, life's, good. life's chill. Uh, right. Live in that still in quarantine life so yeah it's not as though very much is going on it's sure. the first time my parents will actually believe me when i tell them nothing has happened sure you know they call me frequently enough that usually nothing has happened in between when they call me but now that there's a quarantine they actually believe that i was talking about this with my sister i i think if my mom just called me like every couple days or every third day instead of every day i think like it would be overall a better conversation like, like we'd still text and stuff but I feel like the everyday call, the issue with that is, oftentimes, I don't have anything to add to the conversation. Yeah, nothing has like, happened. Nothing has changed in the last, like, I don't know, 19 hours or yes. whatever you, in, you know. In the time since we last spoke and now, I have been asleep or in the hospital. And that is it. That is, that's <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> that's all the things, yeah. Yeah. So. No, there was a time way back in the day, uh, early in undergrad... Where my parents were calling me every single day. And sometimes both of them. Uh, oh, that's interesting. And it was it nearly drove me insane. Uh, I went a while letting them go at that level. And then I think during my sophomore year, I finally had a blowout where I was like, you guys just need to stop calling me because like this isn't working. And <laughs> Did it, you break up with your parents? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I broke up with my parents. No, then they dropped down to a much more reasonable like once or twice a week sort of thing. Uh, and then ever since moving for residency, it's jacked up quite a bit. Um sure. But yeah. you're also three thousand miles away. Yeah, it does. It does. Several time zones tends to have that effect on people. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I overall don't mind it. I mean, it's fine. I, I have no real complaint. It's just that I just feel like when there is more of a space, I feel like we just have a better conversation. Because sure, sure. It's so. it's a hard complaint to make, which is that like somebody cares too much about you, and, and that is not always the case. But my parents are actually relatively mellow. For the most part, they don't really want things. And they, if something interesting was going on, I would tell them. It's right, just that sure. I don't have anything going on. <laughs> My mom is constantly convinced that I might be dating a girl. Like, I think she's just waiting for the day where I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been in a, a relationship for two and a half years that I just haven't been telling you about. <laughs> like, Every day you ask me what's going on, I say nothing. But today I've decided it's the moment. <laughs> Today's something. the day. <laughs> the answer Stephanie was something and, all along. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Samir? How are you doing? 
I'm fine overall. I, th- I think relatively the same as uh, you know last we recorded, which is you know I've had some work. I've been off more than I normally would be, uh, which is interesting. I, I've been talking about it with a number of friends actually. That it, there is something very strange about it because I, I'm working less often and I'm working less when I'm at work than I normally would. At the site I'm specifically at right now, it happens to be our most clinically busy site. And so a 12-hour day is sort of the expected minimum, but often it's, you know, 13, 14 hours in a day. Uh, that's fine. You know, we're busy throughout the day. And, you know, even with our you know, various home call and everything, I think we're, we certainly are not really above 80 hours or anything like that. We're, we're, we're you know, we're, we're below that limit and it's fine. But interestingly now, I'm working less. And yet when I go into work and I'll be there from let's say like 6.30 to 4.30, it feels so much harder. Just like getting myself to go to work. And then when I'm there, I just, I'm like, wow, my God, it feels like I'm expending so much energy. And I was like, am I just, a, am I just broken? But I was talking to other people and they were like, no, 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 I feel the same way. Like it turns out a lot of what keeps us going through it is momentum. Yeah. Um, momentum, super useful. Yeah. It kind of just carries you through. And again, I, I felt that before because it's a classic feeling when you come back from vacation and residence or anytime, really any job, but I think residency comes up a lot. People like when you're on vacation, you're like, oh my God. I forgot what it was to be a person, but now I'm a person again. Fuck, yeah. this is great. I, wish I get I that a, a lot from IR residents. Whenever they come off an IR block, they sit down in front of this computer to read, and they're like, you could convince me that I never had any diagnostic training prior to this. Like, Because they're just in one, they're on one tract in IR. And sure, yeah. you read, but it's not the same. You're not generating reports, you know? So that you, you come off of it and they're like, okay, now read this breast MRI or something, you know, that you just never see on IR. Right, of you're like, I don't know. Or, dude, pray that you are never asked to evaluate an MROB fetus. Because it's two, it's two MRIs. Because <laughs> there's a person inside of another person. <laughs> You know, I saw one recently. It wasn't MRI, but it was it was a CT scan on somebody because they like they have to get a CT scan. Sure. I actually don't remember the exact reason, but like they like it was sort of necessary. And fundamentally, the guidelines say that, particularly in late trimester, like uh, one time low dose CT scan, like it, nothing, it's not going to do anything. It's really fine. Obviously, we try to avoid it, pregnant women, but like you really have to. But it was honestly, it was like very disturbing to look at because it, it looks like a fucking like lizard or something. In there, like, and the, there's, like, all these little tiny bones. It's very right. weird looking. Well, it's, like, very disconcerting. The thing is, like, none of the cuts are right, too, because you don't know which orientation the baby right. is in, right? Yes. For the oh, MRI, it's, it's fine, because they orient against the baby. Oh, so it's actually... Really? Yeah, they, oh, they, they do a localizer, and then they orient. Because the whole point is usually to evaluate them. I didn't realize that was a thing. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And it's a neat study. Like, the first time you read it, you're like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. And then the next thought is, like, this is... Very hard. <laughs> pediatrics in general. I've just been on pediatrics for a while, right? And there's so many things that are just slightly different. And then your your sort of like Bayesian calculations are all different, right? Because like sure. just the probability of a certain pathology showing up. I, I totally kid, right, of course. Totally yeah, different. It's yeah. weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. And all my templates sense. have like little things about degenerative changes, which is like, don't mention that. Of course they don't have degenerative <laughs> changes. They're five. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, no. The um, I I love when I find either there's a like dictation mistake, so they clearly kept something in from the template. There was one. It was on a woman, and it was just like prostate unremarkable. And I was like, I bet it is. <laughs> hey, you're not. You can't always be sure about that. What I found out uh, about a month or two ago is that when somebody's transgender, they change their gender in our power scribe as well. And oh. I was like, oh man, this dude has like some abdominal tumor some crazy tumor I'm like nope 
that's a uterus. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. He was ma- uh, or rather female to male transgender. Uh, and I didn't know that. And so I read out the study after I saw it. Like, obviously, it made sense. Turns out, I guess some part of those hormones can give you pretty gnarly fibroids, which really sucks. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, I didn't know. I, I looked it up. Apparently, there's uh, like a few case studies about it because you'd think it would be the right. exact opposite. Right. Because like I would think like if you're if you have more androgenization, then you would not... Yeah, for the I it, I they didn't have a good uh, I didn't find Mechanism. a good like justification for that yeah. pathophys, but besides That's the point, saw that and then part of me didn't want to tell my attending and just see if they like noticed, but I went and I I, I told him before he looked at it. I was like, just so you know, so you're not right. like totally confused, because then he would have two layers, because he'd be like, okay, and now my <laughs> my resident totally missed. This massive tumor and is an idiot. <laughs> right, both things are true. Yeah. yeah, I in this in the case I'm thinking of, it was a cis woman, and they did not have a prostate, and that was just left in there, I yeah. guess. Or maybe, I, or, or maybe I meant to say something else. I honestly don't remember that well anymore. But it was, yeah, it, it, it was, it was funny to read. Wisely, our our templates are non-gendered. And yeah. the gendered portion of our reports, you have to physically insert. So you have to like click a button to yeah. select, which is good. Uh, but they don't take out, they're, they're not like peds blind, I guess, so they don't sure. take out things that wouldn't apply to kids. Yeah, and that makes sense. That is that is a super interesting, though, about the, uh, like, it's very logical that they would have that MRI study. That was obviously, it's a non, uh, you know, a non-ionizing radiation study, and it makes sense you could obviously change your um, orientation of your cuts. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a processing thing, right, just yeah. to change it. But uh, I did not realize that was a thing. That's really cool. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just so I guess, I guess it has to be done manually, though, right? I mean, you have to look at them and be like, oh, this is the correct axis. Yeah, so there's a localizer sequence that we run first. It's like a very, very fast MRI that just gives you a rough outline of like sure. what orientation things are in. And then you orient based on that. You know, I mean, sometimes you'll actually see them go through. It depends on how your text process things. So like yeah. our text send everything through. So you'll just see all of like the the workhorse sequences that they don't actually have to send through, just oh, there, yeah, um, yeah, which can be rough sometimes because people on the floor will be trying to read off of those, and I'm like, no, that's not, that's not that's a diagnostic like, thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's just my work. <laughs> that's like your scout film before you do fluoro. It's like, well, there's, well, they obviously did nothing here. Yeah, <laughs> this is just a picture of like a person. There's yeah. no contrast anywhere. So, what have you been doing for your wellness as of late? Good question. Let's see. So I've been listening to um, several audiobooks. So I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you off air, but it's a series I really liked when I first read it. Or yeah, I first read it um, back in middle school, which is the His Dark Material series oh, yeah. uh, by, Phil, by, by Philip Pullman. And there is a secondary a companion series that he's recently started writing called like, The Book of Dust. And the first two books of it are out. And I was talking to a good friend of mine who had also read them um, around the same age, and she was saying how she had reread them. And that one, that they're really interesting to reread, and two, that this new series is really good as well, and so I should read it. So I found, I got the audiobooks from them, like I think through like Overdrive or something like that, and then I listened to all the audiobooks of the main, the original trilogy. One, like re- a really good listen, I would highly recommend to everybody, uh, just by itself, I think a really good story, and I think some really interesting ideas. And then two, it's so interesting to compare how I felt reading it now to how I do it as a you know an 11 or 12 year old. I was, I think I definitely got some stuff at, at that age, but I think there was definitely a lot of subtext and other things that I just missed. Um, Cause it's definitely a series that is, you know, ostensibly it's a young adult novel, but there's a lot of stuff in there that is really a abo- way above the head, I think of an actual child. And a lot of like the sort of larger, 
political context and the relation to our world. It's not, it's not really it's not set in our world, but that, there are clear parallels. And it's a, yeah, it's a really, really good series. And the second series I've started as well. I finished the first book and I'm now reading this or listening to the second book and it's super good. Um, so that's been, that's, that's been, that's been really enjoyable. Yeah. Just have of, you watched the HBO show? No, I haven't. I have not. Yeah. Um, I watched like you, the first episode. It was pretty well made, but um, I don't know. Something else popped into my head at the time and I just kind of lost my attention span okay, for yeah. it. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I've heard good things. I mean, I'll yeah. check it out. It looks really good. And the CGI looks amazing because obviously right. like the main concept is that like every human being has an animal companion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's sort of a it's an of an animal representation of your soul, basically. Yeah, everybody has a spirit animal. And in this case, their spirit animal is not me. Which, you know, so that in that way, the show is a little unrealistic. Because yeah, for sure. I mean, without a question. I mean, yeah, you yeah. are most people's spirit animal. Yeah. Uh, there is a bear spirit animal. So, you know, there's some, <laughs> right. there's some in there. But, um, yeah, I, I've heard good things about it. I haven't, haven't dipped in quite yet. That's an interesting thing. There are not many books that I read as, like, a kid to teenager yeah. that I would want to read again right now. Yeah. I, I, the only one really... Other than this, that I have done that for is Harry Potter. Um, and, and Harry Potter, that was still, I think, a while ago when I did. I think it may have been late high school compared to early when I finished the series. So I haven't really reread Harry Potter the same way. And I, I mean, I think I would really enjoy it because I've read those books so many yeah. times. And I think it would be a really enjoyable read. But I think particularly this one, having not read it since basically the age of like 11 or 12. Um, so, I mean, literally over half my life ago. Um, reading them again was really interesting. I, I think one was I remembered how I felt when I read them the first time, but two, I think just, I, I think even if you haven't read them before, there's a lot of depth to that series. And I, I honestly would highly recommend, um, just to people in general. I think it's a, it's a really, really well-written series. Looking back, it's kind of surprising that it didn't, I, mean, I think it was popular and certainly had a fair amount of acclaim, but nothing that rose to, like, mo- like I'll, most people I mentioned this to have never heard of the series. They may have heard of The Golden Compass, maybe. Yeah. Well, The, Do- the Golden Compass, they made a movie. They're so right, which is why I think people have heard about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then obviously now the series as well. Uh, I had heard about it. I'd always been like fantasy adjacent, and then yeah. obviously my fantasy consumption drastically increased over sort of yeah. the last like probably six, seven years or so. But for a while there, it was just like Harry Potter, and then otherwise, I don't know, there was a big middle period where I didn't read a ton. I guess you could probably correlate it like directly with High school and college, where yeah, I was actually, actually same. In hindsight, I wish I had read more because I really enjoy reading. I just don't know why I randomly stopped. Yeah, and most of the books I read now were out during that time period. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a weird gap. I mean, high school, I can knock it up to World of Warcraft, right? That fucking sure. killed my time. <laughs> it killed my life. You know, like the same. You could say the same reason I wasn't reading was the same reason I didn't have a girlfriend in high school either. <laughs> Plot twist. Um, but they're in a state of friends, and I was like, oh, this took a sad turn. I had friends. They lived far away. But we, we hung out. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, we, we raided things together. It was hey, crazy. Those bonds. Admittedly, I don't speak to any of them, so I guess maybe not as strong as they could have been. But, but at the time, I really liked them. Right. Yeah. And then college is like, there's just so much going on when you're like living yeah. with people yeah. and stuff. Nowadays, it's just like turn on an audio book and just live your right, life. Exactly. While you're I at mean, home. I, I think the key difference would have been if in college I had discovered audiobooks. Once again, I knew they were a thing, but I, for some reason, I think I did mention this before. I thought they were kind of weird. I honestly yeah. don't know why I felt that way. I think part of it was it felt like almost a cop out, like you're not reading. Yeah. So I was like, oh, it's not real. Like, which is uh, it really is not a, a legitimate. Well, there, this is going to be like a. This is actually me quoting a "this is a thing" bit. 
I, I remember this very distinctly, but there's been a massive societal shift in the way we perceive audiobooks because audiobooks used to be a thing that like a boring person would put on in the car yes. to signify that they are boring right <laughs> in yeah, a tv show. show yeah yeah uh they also used to be crazy expensive which is a thing i didn't even think about until recently but like it used to have to be like a series of discs that you sell physical media right. or like a series of tapes even before that Right, because I mean, yeah, I mean, if it's a book, it could be like 20 hours of content. Right, right. So my, like, the, my favorite fantasy series, which I just recently caught up to, it's called The Stormlight Archive. I finished the third book called Oathbringer. Oathbringer is 50 hours long. Yes, yeah, not short. Not short, not short. Also, I mean, I listened to it at 1.4 speed. I, I could not imagine listening to that at 1x speed. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I'm normally around 1.3-ish for my audio yeah. yeah, and I listen to podcasts constantly. So, like, when right. I get into an audiobook, essentially, I just get behind on all my podcasts. It doesn't take me very long to catch up, but, you know, that's the life I live. <laughs> but. To your point about listening to them in the car, like, I toured the end of March. I was on vacation, and so I wanted to avoid flying, given everything going on with COVID. And so I drove to where my sister lives, which is around a six-and-a-half to seven-hour drive. And I listened to – actually, it was the third book in the series – both on the way and back, about a week apart, but I ended up, you know, I basically ended up finishing the book while driving. And it was, I mean, it was really nice, honestly. Like, I was very engaged with it the whole time. Because I think listening to music would have been pretty boring after a while. Yeah. For like, after like seven hours. And I, yeah, especially because I was doing it solo. There's no one else in the car with me. Um, so it was really, and obviously I was driving in the middle of the day, but even still, I mean, you know, you're always concerned, like, oh, you're driving on a highway, you know, could you get tired or whatever. But I, I mean, I was, I was kept really awake and engaged just by listening to this audiobook. Easily, I was like, I was just super, super interested in what was happening in the story, and it made the drive go by quickly. So. Yes, yes, audiobooks are great for drives. Oddly enough, it's a weird thing to impose on another person, which is why yes. I suppose that trope became a thing. But it's nice when you're just kind of riding solo and you can enjoy it yourself. I used to do it a ton when I was driving back and forth uh, from medical school and like off sites and stuff. Uh, I, I remember there was this really annoying thing that developed in Audible. If you were listening to an audiobook and you had navigation on, if an instruction came up, Audible would rewind a few seconds just to like refresh you right. on what happened. But as you were driving into Boston, both of us were in Boston. Every two seconds. Yeah, there'd be there'd be a like five second instruction because it would read off the entire sign and it would show up like six times in a row. So I would actually fast forward like 30 seconds on one stretch of road. (laughs) I ended up memorizing the directions there just so I could turn off my navigation and just go. Just go. Yeah. (laughs) Make it easier. Yeah, for sure. But okay, so. I think as we mentioned last time, that, (laughs) that, that, that was our fasting around, I guess. Oh, yes. Yes. Shall we initiate? Uh, a, a lockdown on faffing. <laughs> We're gonna quarantine faffing to the first half of the podcast. Right, right. It, yeah. it, it, it feels a little artificial to just cut the conversation short, and I, I'm sure we could talk about audiobooks for, frankly, too long. But maybe sure. this is good for our listeners. Sure. I mean, that, that I think this. anybody who listened to our old podcast is currently incredibly impressed that we glanced off Harry Potter and didn't get into like an hour long <laughs> conversation because <laughs> that's right. a miracle. <laughs> That's insane. It's actually truly, if there's one thing that's like, how do you know that you've like matured and changed in residency? Like that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's changed starting residency. I just know when to stop now. But anyway, so in terms of, I guess, our topic for this time, I mentioned it at the end of last podcast. And as you said, well, I guess this is not going to be a super cheery episode. 
no. uh, because what I suggested was a topic about uh, abuses in medicine, which I think certainly falls under the umbrella of wellness in medicine and kind of the way we attempt to cultivate that, but certainly is a darker topic uh, to For address. For sure, yeah. No one would claim that abuse is a light <laughs> topic. But yeah, sure, episode two, you know, we've <laughs> just not? started doing this, but let's tackle it. Why not? Let's jump right into it. I would say get ready for abuse part two around episode 20, when we were like, oh man, we really fucked that first one up. <laughs> <laughs> so, abuse in medicine. I think it's a hard conversation to kind of just jump into, but um, I guess I'll start off with a question to you, which is, both in medical school and in residency, have there been specific instances that you have seen that both maybe don't necessarily rise fully to that level, but kind of just seem not awesome, and things that you really do feel like really rise to the level of abuse. Between those two things, how do you distinguish them, basically? Where where exactly? Obviously, it's a continuum, but where is that line for you? Hmm. I mean, that's a tricky thing, right? To, to truly call something abuse. Well, I suppose first and foremost, it kind of has to be a repeated behavior, right? Sure, yeah. Usually, these aren't one-off things. The problem is we, we often train for one-off things. We kind of know what to do when one time somebody does something they shouldn't have done. You know, usually you can ignore it and it'll go away and it'll never be an issue again. But with true actual abuse, a lot of the times it's not that simple. Have I seen it myself? There's the little things, the little things that I think most people wouldn't even necessarily consider to be frank abuse. Just the constant acknowledgement that being a resident makes you qualified for lesser duties, you know, that you are the first in line to go do things. I, I would say the most notable example to me of, of a situation in which I would really say that something was abuse was I had a senior resident who was outright hostile to his interns for like an extended period of time. Now, his his intern was, let us say, to be as general as possible, lacking in certain areas. Nothing awful, but like things that could be, you could give feedback. To say that there is, it starts with a grain of reality, which is that there was some areas in which that person could improve. But instead of approaching it like an adult, the senior resorted to sort of aggression. Like, at times mm. he would literally front on his intern. Front on? Wait, wait. Square up like he was about to hit the guy. I don't know, man. It, it was insane, right? That is really insane. I mean, I, that's... What? Yes, yes. And this, it was just two clashing personalities. Because the, the intern himself was kind of, uh, had his rough edges. And then the senior just couldn't handle that in any sort of adult way. Like, if one person said something mildly offensive, most of us would ignore it unless you had no coping skills with which to deal with that. So if you pair those two people up... Oh, that sounds like a recipe for success, for sure. Yeah. Uh, in that way, how that situation resolved was kind of for the best. Ultimately, they ended up just reassigning that senior to a different team. I kind of felt bad for the senior who got shifted in because he wasn't on awards month and, like, this was during my medicine time. So, sure. yeah. In, in radiology... I guess one of the pluses of the field is it's it's in general kind of difficult to abuse each other because you're just kind of like, what are you going to do? Make me read more? Like, I, I read while I'm here and then I leave. That's all you can sure. do to me. <laughs> Nowadays, in the time of COVID, the sort of minor abuse, but it's important, is where I find that the residents are, are taking on certain duties to prevent 
attendings from having to come into the hospital. Because radiology, right, our contact with patients can be zero, except for certain very specific things. And as it turns out, it ends up the residents end up doing a lot of that stuff now that there's a pandemic going on. Sure. Uh, So you've minimized the risk, yes, but the only risk that's being taken is by the residents. In terms of like reallocation, that kind of makes sense, right? There's the clinical aspects of it. The residents are closest to having their clinical training, right? Certainly, if somebody told me, hey, Anoop, you need to go do wards medicine, I wouldn't be super jazzed about it, but I'd be able to do it, right? But it's hard to not feel like, okay, so I have to take on the risk and I will receive no compensation or anything to that effect right no of course right then that's you know and i i think for both of us i think we're both on institutions where i I guess that hasn't come up we haven't reached that point specifically i think because of where the pandemic has you know been its worst yeah i think along those lines i think something that we've been discussing was the situation uh in new york oh man you know so new york obviously has been hit really hard by the covid pandemic Mm -hmm. and so there's been a lot of discussions at various new york hospitals basically on, you know, one, how to sort of reallocate, redeploy residents and other staff, the involvement of various services in which uh, in which areas that require it, additional pay, for example, for traveling nurses or traveling uh, PAs and PAs are all things I've seen online. And there has been therefore been discussion from the resident standpoint of whether they should also receive some, some form of hazard pay, given that they are at increased hazard compared to really sort of what they had initially signed up for. And I think, you know, to make that clear to everyone, it's not that we don't expect to be exposed to sick people. It's just that we don't expect or I don't think anyone really expected to be part of a pandemic. And so the question is basically if everyone else in these other various roles are getting sort of additional compensation for it, is it not reasonable that residents should also? And so at one specific New York, you know, at several New York hospitals, um, that was the case. Residents were given additional pay or um, kind of additional compensation um, for this additional risk they were taking on. And then at one specific hospital, uh, they were not. But beyond that, uh, there was sort of an internal email thread amongst various administrators, um, heads of programs, heads of departments, um, that basically focused on why exactly it wasn't going to happen. And this was accidentally forwarded to residents, um, which is just... (laughs) One, just so in character. The fact that no, uh, this is going to be kind of a controversial statement, but it appears that nobody who has obtained a degree in medicine and has been practicing for well over a certain period of time understands the function of a reply all but. God, like, just seriously, guys, look at your, how many emails do you send a day and you still can't keep track of reply all? Yeah, so unclear exactly what happened, but it got sent to the residents. Um, and then it, now it's in various publications. I think I saw it in, like, Medscape recently, I think. I think it mm-hmm. picked up by some larger organizations as well. It was posted on Reddit initially. That's how it got picked up. Um, and and it's, it's certainly a very sobering email thread. Because I think, fundamentally, I'll start off with what I think what the administrative side is saying, which is basically, like, we are operating right now and we're losing money because we're not doing elective surgeries. We're not having all these other various patients in here. So our, currently our hospital is operating at a loss and therefore we don't really have the money to pay residents extra. And I think the immediate reaction is, yeah, but, you know, obviously all these other people are getting paid more for kind of helping out or joining in. And obviously we're sort of a captive labor market. So it's easy to say, like, we don't have to, but it's like, should we not also be compensated in the same way? I think that's a discussion that can be had. I think it perhaps isn't intrinsically unreasonable to say our finances are tight right now. We, it, it, we just can't do it. You can argue it either way, I think. I think what the issue was is that several people on that email thread from various departments basically were like, 
this is ridiculous to even ask these residents that are like, why are they so money obsessed? And like, they don't really care about patients more more or less. I'm paraphrasing. There's more or less like they are not putting patients first. They're just caring about themselves and getting money. The insinuation that the residents were not compassionate, I believe, is some of the language that was used. Yeah. The, the insinuation that it was something that was clearly the responsibility of less mature residents was also some of the language that was used. It was like clearly like the level of condescension was right. Yeah, high. <laughs> and and so I think that part is shitty because I think I think at the end of the day, if they're like, yeah, we're not going to give you additional compensation, I don't think anyone's going to be happy about it. But I I think you can have the discussion in a way that one feels like honest that you're actually treating them like colleagues. And two, I think similarly, you can do things that put yourself in their shoes, right? So things like the executives of these hospitals and administrators, they're also taking pay cuts. You can do those things. You can publicize that. I mean, you can do it. Like I know at our at our institution, there is an email, like our broader institution, there was an email sent. And by our, I mean the med school we went to and also the place we went for undergrad as well. It was sent out by the president of the university that he and the provost of the university we're taking, I think, believe 20% pay cuts. And sure, we look at their salaries, they're still making a ton of money. But that, I think, symbolically is an important thing to do. Yeah. Because people who cannot afford that sort of uh, shortfall in their cash flow are dealing with it. And you, as like the top person of this like ivory tower, are like, yeah, but I mean, it's fine. <laughs> it just comes off as really disingenuous when you're not showing any sort of sacrifice yourself. Yes, yes. I, and the thing is, it's, it's so blind to the reality of life as a resident, right? So first of all, this is New York, right? Yeah. Epicenter of the pandemic in the United States, let's say. Like, just mm-hmm. to, as bad as it can get in the state yeah. side, right? Now, while we sign up for a lot of things, becoming a resident and going into medicine in general, I don't think we implicitly sign up for the risk of death. And we sign up knowing that at all times we should have the best tools available with which to complete our job. And neither of those are true with what's going on right now. There is an increased risk of actually dying from what you're doing. Or seriously ill. Or seriously ill, right? Uh, So, ill enough to... It's a thing that I don't think a lot of people not in medicine understand, apparently. Many things they don't understand. But that you don't just come back from ARDS and you're like, fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's oh, not a thing um, that happens. Yeah, there are like serious long-term consequences right, to right. getting that level of sick, right? And if you're that telling level. me like, let's say I am a surgical resident, right? I, I have signed up for some risks, right? I've, uh, I, I've invested myself in something, right? But if you're telling me like, okay, go here, do this job you didn't want to do without the equipment you need to do it safely, and maybe you will die... Or be hampered in such a way that you will not be able to pursue the career that you want to pursue. Right. And or I'm the not going to give you... life you expected. Exactly. I'm not going to give you life insurance or hazard pay. And so if you die or are crippled, you will not be able to provide for whatever theoretical family you may or may not have. Or yourself. Because there's no monetary compensation, right? That is... I mean, that's just basic human ethics like that doesn't seem that difficult to me right now admittedly is the situation worse for grocery store workers who are also going through that risk and they work at a grocery store for minimum wage Eh, yeah 
yeah, I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think you'd be wrong in saying that. But this is the situation for residents, right? The people that everybody's claiming are heroes right now, which is another whole rant. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing, right? Yeah, yeah but it might, it might be a bit of a tangent. But. Right, but let, let's stick with just the physician-to-physician relationship here. It's it's a lack of respect. It's it, it's the inability to have an adult conversation with another person. Like, just to be like, we don't yeah. have the money to do this, which is fair. I mean, like you're saying, totally reasonable. You probably don't have the money to do this. Yeah. Now, should you still try to rearrange things to provide things like hazard pay? I think yes. Once again, I think that is a conversation that can be had. But if you instead just immediately shut it down with, as you point out, just like insinuating kind of shitty things. Yeah. It just, it it leaves a really bad taste, I think, in everyone's mouth. And I, I think to tie back to our larger topic, I think it's just sort of emblematic of this, of this feeling as a resident that, Oftentimes, we feel that we're not valued at the way we necessarily should be. So another thing I'll mention is that um, there's a there's another article I read recently, and I think I, I sent it over to you as well. It was in the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and it was about residents in the New York area um, and kind of what they've had to face um, with everything going on, specifically focused on residents and a lot of residents who are, are not normally in ICU settings, not normally dealing with this level of acuity, um, who kind of impressed into action, you know, be the psychiatry residents or family medicine residents. The article mentions dentistry residents, unclear if the person writing just doesn't know what they're talking about or they mean OMFS. Point is, people who um, normally would not be taking care yeah. of patients uh, in, a, in, a, in a respiratory ICU, basically. And, uh, you know, a lot of what it chronicles are, are basically that the residents feel very unsupported, that they're not getting the sort of level of supervision and training that they are used to and that they anticipate, and that their fear is that that is leading to basically worse care for patients. And I guess the flip side is, you know, what's the alternative, you know, because then there wouldn't necessarily be anybody to care for them at all. And so that's kind of what the article is discussing. Um, And I'm I'm curious what your thoughts were. In terms of reactions, uh, I've heard people describe this as somewhere in the area of mildly horrifying, which I think is a pretty accurate description of what's going on there. It's pretty stunning. I mean, it is not surprising. Essentially, from the resident perspective, right, if you redeployed these residents to hear that they are struggling with that redeployment is not crazy surprising. To hear that there are these sort of these strong emotional reactions to the number of patients that they're losing, right? I mean, your average family medicine resident can vary. I mean, family medicine is a residency in and of itself that has a lot of variation, of right? But I think most of them are not signing up to work in an ICU and have you know, a number of their patients pass away and certainly not the psychiatry residents. I imagine ICU, I mean, uh, family medicine residents get some level of ICU exposure. Sure. So uh, I know our our family medicine residents do at least a block of ICU at some ICU nights. It's not very much. And beyond their training, you know, sort of their career goals wise, I think most of them are just in it to get it done and, you know, they want to learn, but they don't right. want to. They're generally not the dealing life. with critical care as a matter, of course, during their career. That's not normally right. a pathway. And, you know, I've done ICU rotations as well, and I had a, a handful, a few ARDS patients. To have this number of patients with ARDS, which is 
essentially to have this number of very severely ill patients who will likely die at one time is going to have an emotional impact only exacerbated by the fact that you're not a person who signed up for that. Right. Like, you know, people, a lot of people in this article and gets back to some of the things we were talking about, residency directors and such making statements say like, oh, you're, you're a physician, you signed up for this, but that's not true, really. No. Like, I mean, speaking as a radiologist, you know, obviously I want to do interventional, so I still sign up for some amount, but like your average diagnostic radiologist does not want to deal with patients on like a day-to-day basis in that way. Also, I'd say even as an interventional radiologist, I mean, what you certainly deal with critical patients, but you're acting to perform a particular procedure on them. You're not, you you don't have your hands directly as part of their care their entire way through, and you're not directly dealing with the day-by-day decline or improvement or, or death as it may be. It's honestly a very different role even though you may have your hand in the care of critical patients. Right, right. So to be thrust into this role to feel entirely unprepared. I mean, that is the resonant experience to be thrust into roles for which you feel unprepared. But the goal is that you will eventually not feel unprepared. And usually the case is that you have plenty of backup in those situations. And that's just not the case here. Like, you're being pushed into an ICU, you're taking care of these people, and they may die because of mistakes you make. And now they may just die because they also have COVID, and, you know, the chances are right. they, they could die. But the the mental burden of having somebody die because you made a mistake, that's lifelong. That's not something you're going to get over. And you can talk about, like, you know, outside of the situation, you can intellectualize. You could say, well, I was put in a situation where I wasn't ready and I didn't, you know, I wasn't given the tools to succeed. However, I think the average person in medicine will not feel comforted by that. (laughs) They're not going to. They're not going to leave that situation and be like, oh, yeah, you know what? It was a tough situation. So I feel okay with the fact that people died on my watch. All they're going to feel is that uh, that emotional. I think on the flip side and kind of what we're discussing, I think we're coming at it obviously from the perspective of residents who have that empathy because sure, we haven't been in that precise situation, but I think we've been in close enough situations that we can put ourselves in their shoes, I think, fairly easily, um, at least intellectually, right? You know. I have not dealt with that emotional burden, but I understand the fundamental feelings of feeling like you're out of your depth, uh, feeling that fear that you could cause harm to somebody because you don't know enough. That is a, that is an ever-present fear throughout medical training. I, I think what's concerning to me also about this article is that I think the general public, and I think lay people do not have that understanding at all. And I think the article reads really differently for them. And certainly some of the comments um, on that article suggest that. A lot of them are people saying things like, you know, uh, these residents basically need to like man up more or less, you know, for this social situation. But like that's medicine, more or less calling into question the competence of these young doctors. And I think what's really frustrating about that is that I think anyone who's in the situation, you look at what's happening, you're like, anyone in that situation would fail. This has no bearing or, or it doesn't say anything about the competence or the skill or the capabilities of these residents because they're they're set up to fail completely, right? And, and, so, and several of the scenarios that are described in this article are not even things that are necessarily preventable, even if they were better supervised, let's say. There's one discussion of a patient 
who had a GI bleed and they were transfusing him blood and then they felt like they didn't transfuse it fast enough. It doesn't really totally make sense in the article, but if someone was literally hemorrhaging from a GI bleed I, I, who had COVID presumably, uh, the assumption is that sure, maybe they needed MTP, but I, I, I think the real issue is that they were in a really bad state and an extremist to begin with. And I'm not sure that sure. would have necessarily been the tipping point. Right, right. And, and, and we're not good at dealing with death and responsibility at a baseline. Like, even when we're not in the case of massive mortality, we, as a culture, as a medical culture, don't deal with the fact that we might experience some amount of trauma from death particularly well. That is to say, like, it's only recently that people started saying, like, hey, you know, if somebody dies, maybe you should debrief with your right. team and talk about how they might feel, you know? And and not everybody does that particularly well. And now you're in a scenario where it's people are, to use a sort of morbid phrase, they're dropping like flies here, you know? You don't have time to debrief on the GI bleeder where you felt you should have transfused faster. Likely, if that person had a chance to sit down and talk with somebody, they would say, you know, that was a call to make and you could have gone either way and you weren't wrong for making one call over the other and it know? might not have made a difference because it might not have made a difference right Matt, you know so to say that person is probably going to feel the burden of that for a while in a normal situation maybe they could have uh something some comfort given to them but right now there's no system to deal with them and on top of that you have people telling them that they shouldn't feel that way. First of all, I mean, I didn't read the comments because that's never good for your sort of mental health. I did not specifically, but in reading a thread about this, several people had quoted comments, which is which I then read. I'll say, you know, people have the right to comment on whatever they feel like commenting on. But please shove it up your ass. <laughs> if you for think... me, it bred so much contempt, actually, just reading those things. Because it's the right. ultimate like armchair quarterbacking, where it's like sure. they have no concept of what we do with at a baseline on a day to day basis. They have no framework for yeah. even beginning to understand this, let alone this the insanity that's being described. And they're commenting on it with all the confidence of a seasoned grizzled veteran. It's like you don't know what the mm -hmm. fuck you're talking about, and it's infuriating. It's just so infuriating to read. Right, right. If an ICU attending tells me to proverbially man up, at least I can say, like, well, that guy does this, <laughs> and, like, this is his job. Yeah. And As so, we discussed, like, still not great to do. There are better ways of going about that. No. But, you know, right, at least it's coming from a, a real place, a, theoretically, a real place of actual understanding. Yeah. Oh, just because it popped into my head as I was saying that, because I was using the phrase man up. I appreciate that this entire discussion is done from the context of us being two non-minority men in medicine, uh, non-underrepresented minority men in medicine. And if we're talking about abuse in medicine, there is a whole discussion to be had from the point of view of an underrepresented minority or a woman. Obviously, we're not covering those topics yeah. right now. Not to say that they don't exist. You know, if this ever becomes more of a thing... And we could have guests or something yeah. like that to actually discuss the topic in detail. We would love Certainly, to Certainly, I that. think both, uh, you know, colleagues of ours and friends who fall into those groups, I think, have told us just extraordinarily terrible stories um, of things they have dealt with. Um, and, and certainly, I think it could be an entirely another hour plus long discussion of what exactly those, uh, those, those relatively underrepresented groups face. 
um, with the right, and, right. And so I think, yeah, I think a very, very good, good point to make. I think, and certainly, I think there should be an understanding that we're we are simply uh, scratching at the tip of the iceberg. Exactly. But I, I think a lot of these things are endemic to medicine, and I think a lot of these feelings from the public are just there. And I think medicine as a field being more in the public eye has brought a lot of this stuff more to light, which I guess in some ways is, is good, right? I mean, you can't, uh, I feel there's a phrase here, you can't like clear the cockroaches until you see them or something, I don't know, something along those lines. But it's also a little bit disturbing, you know, to kind of pull back the curtain and be like, oh, this is what people really feel and this is what people really think. It's it's sometimes nice to have a to have a comfortable fantasy. <laughs> oh, yeah, like the sure, general public sure. appreciates what we do. And it's like, do they or do they appreciate the idea of what we do? Everybody likes some measure of uh, deniability or the ability to just say, hey, yeah, it's probably all yeah. right. And, and being a seasoned pessimist as I am, I, I tend to lean on the fact that it's probably not yeah. all right. But even then, for me, sometimes in reality, I'm just like, oh, this is way yeah. more not all right than no, exactly. I thought it would I, mean, be. I think I'm cynical on the baseline. I think you sort of have to be to be in medicine, which is also in- intrinsically fucked up, but I think it's true. But yeah, even still, a good amount of this has been surprising and not in a good way. Yes, yes. I, I think the word you used earlier was contempt. And I do a lot of active contempt management nowadays, just keeping it the resentment from polluting my ability to do my job. I think there, you don't need to care about people to be good, medically speaking. However, it certainly makes it easier to do the day-to-day work yeah. if you also feel as though you are helping somebody who is worth helping. Yeah. Uh, and when people do inherently very stupid things... And then they get hurt afterwards by their stupid actions. It is harder to feel sympathetic to them. So when I see beaches in LA crowded with people, there is a a spike of contempt that I have to quell and say, these people don't know any better, despite the fact that literally they have millions of opportunities to know better. Despite the fact that information is just freely available online at any given time. But so is disinformation, so double-edged sword there. But uh, do you hear? I'm falling into it right now. I'm doing it. It's tough, right? I think anyone in medicine will talk about it. You know, we, we don't do medicine because we're like, we want praise or we want to feel like the general public loves us. But I gotta say, being appreciative does not cost anything. And it's a lot nicer to treat a patient who's like, thank you. For what you did for me. Because once again, it literally costs them nothing to do. And it just feels way better. Yeah. That's just a general right, lesson. For life. It's a, it's a good life lesson. Yeah. It just feels better when people are nice to you and appreciate you. But once again, just saying thanks. Not hard to do. A little digression. This is a thing that uh, comedian Pete Holmes says. Which he says that we're constantly just walking around with the keys to other people's happiness in our pockets. And we just choose not to use them. All the time. That's every person, every day. You have the ability to probably make somebody else around you happier, and you just kind of choose not to do it because, I don't know, you think it'd be weird or inappropriate or whatever it might be. And it's not to say that you should always be complimenting people and joyous and all this stuff. There's a time and place, but you have a lot of ability to make other people around you feel appreciated, and people do better work when they feel appreciated. I'll, I'll change the topic slightly. 
I had started reading a while ago this book, and I pulled it up to to read through again in, in anticipation of this. Um, and so, and so the book is called His Dark Materials. Can you imagine if I brought that to that? Like, what the fuck? No, no, trust, trust me, it comes around. It's so really everybody's weird. paired with what's called a daemon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this book is called Forgive and Remember, Managing Medical Failure by this guy named Charles Bosk. Um, it's a really, really interesting book, actually. I, I, I would recommend if you have the time to, to read it. I think it's available on the Kindle for like 10 books. And, uh, basically, the book, it's actually fascinating. This guy is like a sociologist somehow got the ability, it must have been like the 70s or 80s when there were not rules for this, to like just basically be with surgical residents for like 18 months. He just like did everything. He like would go to work with them and like see patients and like be in surgeries with them. Just like in, like in hindsight, like insane, actually. I don't know how, how this is possibly allowed. Um, but he did this for a year and a half, occasionally taking breaks to like take notes and write and stuff. And it's a really fascinating look at, specifically for surgical, I think for surgical residents, it's a really interesting read. It looks at how exactly we classify medical error and the way in which training influences how we look at that. And what a lot of, or I guess what comes out of a lot of those discussions is the sort of like fear of being reprimanded and the fear of being like berated and all this kind of stuff, which influences the way these residents go about their daily lives. I think it was a different environment back then. I think it is better now. But I think some, there are certainly some quotes in there that I think anyone who's been a medical student or a resident, you relate to a little too much. And it's bad that you do because it's been like 40 years and it should, you shouldn't feel that, that like, these things shouldn't happen still. I'll read a select quote. He's talking about basically the attending finds out something that, you know, you should have been told before or something happened with a patient. And then basically they get like publicly berated. And uh, the quote is, how staff report they find these public talking to is humiliating, that they make them feel, quote, really worthless, and that the fear of being a victim motivates performance. At the same time, this fear creates bitterness and resentment toward attendings. This mixture of awe and ill will directed at attendings emerges as a common theme in autobiographical accounts and medical training, especially good examples when you list a bunch of books. It's a really disconcerting book to read when you're going through it. Because once again, I, I would not pretend, I think what they went through is a lot different and is a lot worse. But there are a lot of things that stand out as experiences I've either been witness to or have experienced myself. And it's really disconcerting because you realize that, I mean, it's just a, it's just a consistent pattern for decades. And that, that just generations of doctors have been trained in that environment. And there isn't a lot that's done specifically to change that. You know, there's a lot of reaction like, oh, that attending specifically to this bad thing, we should have a discussion with them, whatever. But systemically, it's not um, addressed that much. And I think that, I think reading it really emphasizes that. Well, I'll have to check it out for sure. I think it really resonates with me, like, things have changed. And if there's, by chance, anybody who is not a resident listening to that, I think we can all acknowledge that things are better than they used to be. And this strikes me kind of non-medically and medically as well. I think what I feel the most is that Yes, things have changed. Yes, they have gotten better. But shouldn't we be capable of something better right. than this? I, yeah, it's better than it used to be. But it used to be god-awful. Right. And and our correction shouldn't be a correction of inches. It should be a correction of miles. We should be striving to do something entirely different. Yeah. You know, alluding back to the superhero thing, but what we do is next level. It is... A level of commitment that you are not required to put into almost any other profession out there. Nobody, you know, like the 40-hour work week is like a standard thing for everything besides what we do. 
you know? And when we talk about, like, people marvel at the fact that, like, tech companies can be working past that time. Meanwhile, it's been just the standard operating procedure in medicine for years upon years. We're over here being like, oh, you, you, you stayed at work where you have all this food and places to nap for 20 hours coding. Cool story, bro. <laughs> they put me in a closet to sleep. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, the level of effort we're expected to put in but to be treated as mediocre or having no value yeah. is so much on top of that. It's like, I could I could work that time. I could work, what was the time we quoted last week? Past 55 hours. I can willingly shorten my telomeres. But then if you're going to make me feel shit about it after that. Yeah. It just, yeah, it's like an insult to injury. Insult to a literal yeah. injury. Yeah. It's interesting that the specific way you kind of phrase that really made me um, think about um, something which, because this is a dark episode, why not? I'll discuss it. So I'm not sure when this happened for you. Have you uh, cried in residency? Have I cried? Oh, yes. Yes, I have. It was a very distinct moment for me. This is probably the closest I've ever gotten to being abused, though. Luckily, I avoided the brunt of it. I had a patient. I was on ICU. Not surprising, given it's a story about me being emotionally overwhelmed by something. Uh, I had a patient whom had a very advanced stage cancer, was now post-op, was not doing well post-op. She was in the process of losing organ systems over the course of days. And I, she, mm. I've been running kind of solo on this one. Um, you know, we had a lot of other things that required a lot of care from sort of our senior resident and our fellow. So I had been doing a lot of conversations with this family, probably the most involved I had been with a family up until that point in time. And I was keeping them abreast of the situation. And, you know, each time something fails, you have a plan, you have another plan, and everything was going the wrong way. And it got to that point where it had been about a week or so, a week and a half of no improvement and active decline. And I was talking to the family about getting palliative care on board. Right. And now I made sure to start that conversation with the fact that this does not mean that we're giving up. Right. It does not mean that we're going to stop care. definition does not require. We're still doing things. And if they work, that's great. But we get these people on board just to clarify goals of care and make sure every, you know, sure. the, the whole spiel, right? Right. I was very sensitive about it. I spent a long time in that room doing it. Now, this case was very unique, right? Because I said it was a post-op patient, which means that we weren't just dealing with the ICU team. We also had a surgical team. And the surgical team was used to having their patients in the SICU. They were in the MICU. Oh, uh, man. I, I've seen this from the other side. Oh, yeah. It's never good. And the thing is, I was struggling every day to get in contact with the surgical team and like keep them abreast of the plan. And look, I have infinite empathy for them. The residents are struggling between cases and floor work. They don't have time to be manning the phone for whenever the Mickey resident decides to call them. Totally fine. And multiple days in a row, I had delayed plans for to wait for them to get back to me. And I get it, right? It's their patient. I don't want to like step on any toes. I'm going to do the right thing here. I'm going to follow that hierarchy to a certain extent. And so I made sure to call them before I consulted palliative care. And even then, I, I put the consult in and I told the family about it. But like, they it, surgery knew that I was doing that. So I thought. Oh, um, God. 
But oh, it, it appears that there was a bit of a breakdown in the conversation oh, between the residents oh. and the surgeon. And oh, boy. I don't blame them necessarily because I'm getting so on... tense listening to the story. Uh, so then the, the the attending shows up to talk to the family after I have this conversation with them. And I haven't heard from them all day at that point in time. And they're actually there. So I walk up to be like, hey going on <laughs> like uh any anything i should change anything you guys want me to do any updates for the day and i get reamed out and essentially told that they're transferring that patient to the sick you that they don't want anybody for the MICU dealing with them anymore because of the consults of palliative care that it was inappropriate and that you made the family believe that we were giving up and i'm like i 100 percent know i didn't do that because i talked to them <laughs> like i specifically said that it was me the reason I was shielded a little bit from it was because he was under the impression that somebody else had had that conversation. That it, I was just the the intern who didn't know anything about the case and was just covering it. Uh, and, and so they, they did end up transferring that patient. And they did end up consulting palliative care two days later. She died, let's say, two and a half days later. <laughs> so yeah. not when they should have consulted palliative care. Right. Because... Uh, you know, I've talked to palliative care. They hate coming in the room like three hours before somebody Yeah, dies. like it's what's really even not... the point of that? There's no... Exactly. I had also heard at a later point in time that the attending said like, I don't know why we didn't consult palliative care earlier. Oh my God. Infuriated. Infuriated. But at that moment, I was just yeah. so mad and, yeah. and upset because it, it, was a, it was an attack directly at my abilities as not even as a clinician necessarily. Like if you didn't think the decision was right or you thought there was more to do well one palliative care doesn't change the goals of care. like you can still take care of the right sure but set that aside yeah uh, setting that aside if you didn't think it was right there's a conversation to be had and and a realignment so that the two teams can work together but to totally fire a team is to say that you thought their care was so inappropriate that you don't trust them to take care of the patient anymore and and when you've already done so, like you've committed so much of yourself into exactly. it, exactly. That's exactly. Brutal. That's brutal. Yeah. 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 So that that was pretty rough, and I was pretty upset about that for the rest of the day. I got over it eventually. You know, you live your life, and uh, I guess I had my vindication. It, sure. It's hard to feel any sort of sense of satisfaction when a person you just feels. Shitty. At the end of the day, I don't want to say palliative care could have brought them some sort of solace over those last few days. I don't know, right? But they didn't get that thing. They got transferred to another unit, and she died With anyways. people who didn't know them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, I have a hard time believing that they were just, like, totally happy with the, how that whole thing went down. Uh, beyond the sadness of just the event itself. Like, did they get good care? Did they get good a transition of care? Did they feel like they were being taken care of? In this thing, that was probably going to happen either way. It's like... The kind of thing where you're upset and there's just no coming back from that. There's no feeling like you won. You yeah. can't argue. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing. And, and later on, the residents were with them and the surgical residents texted me and they're like, you handled that perfectly. Like, pretty much I just sat there and I nodded and I said, okay, I understand. And yeah, of course. that was it, right? And, yeah, and like he moved do. on and the residents were very nice. Because I, like, I know maybe some part of that story made it sound like I thought it was their fault. But really, I don't think the communication on that team was at a healthy place. Suffice it to say, based on my isolated interaction, I don't know if, if, yeah. if they were able to communicate with their attending in a way that felt healthy to them. So that, that's not a blame game. The only person I blame is the guy who... <laughs> shoot me out yeah, there's a part of it where obviously i feel as though i was right 
But there's also a part of it where even if I had been wrong, I don't think he handled it in a way where if, say, I had been wrong and I was a medicine resident and this decision was actually a thing I should have learned a lesson about, I don't think firing me was the right answer. (laughs) Right. For it. Yes. So that was the time. I don't think there's probably a few others in there. Yeah, I was pretty bummed. I couldn't make my uh, best friend's bachelor's party. I did it. I ended up making their wedding and I officiated their wedding. So that was great. But But, (laughs) it was just kind of a bummer not to make it to sort of that event. But those things are a little less traumatizing. Yeah. How about you? So I, part of the reason I brought up the, the, the first, the, the thing I thought of, it's, it's strange because I, I was on a number of services early in intern year that I think had me interacting with patients who um, were either really badly maimed in the case of like trauma, um, mm. lives changed forever, died really tragic deaths. Then I followed it up with like vascular. So once again, just like awful disease and people who died and it was terrible. And sure. And that happened a bunch, right? I mean, it, it doesn't happen just throughout the year. You're around patients and the patients die. And, uh, you know, it's strange. I, when I look back, I don't think I actually did cry about any of that. And not to say that I didn't feel when they died. It sucked. And since then, there have been patients that I've specifically cried about because it was like particularly tragic. The young people which had awful cancer, let's say, and just, just, it's just shitty. It's just like really shitty. And it mm-hmm. just is what it is. But the thing I'm specifically thinking about, which is I think somewhat similar to your story, although I think a bit of a different bent to it, is that I thought I was on a rotation and I was on with a senior resident, someone who I'm friends with. And it was a difficult rotation, definitely a very demanding rotation, a mix, you know, between OR and consults and clinic and inevitably patients were sick. And so there's always a lot happening and it was very difficult to keep the service together. And the resident was doing a good job, but it's difficult. It's it's difficult to do. Um, And there were sort of like, there's a senior resident, sort of like a mid-level senior resident, like like a third or fourth year. And so there's one attending and their goal, I think overall is to teach and to try to get people to view pathologies and view the workup for diseases a certain way, but their style of teaching can definitely be a bit abrasive, can can be a lot sometimes. And so uh, we were on one of these sort of teaching rounds and kind of going through the that what we call pimping, right? The process of just asking question after question. Pimping is such a unique experience. And so this, that was happening. And once again, this is, it's been a very difficult and stressful rotation for all of us. And the resident answered the question, I think reasonably, but not exactly kind of the way the attending wanted them to and kind of kept focusing on it and sort of like rating them for like not getting it. And then eventually sort of in the middle of it, the resident just started like crying in the middle of rounds, which is really horrifying and really upsetting. To the attending's credit, uh, they stopped and apologized and then kind of like sort of went on a brief like walk with the resident and kind of like kind of away from rounds sort of like talked. But it was just like it was just like really upsetting. Um, it was just a really upsetting thing to see. Because um, beyond it was, a, you know, it was a co-resident. It was also like a friend of mine. And uh, I, I later talked to this person and they were just like, yeah, I mean, that's not like a thing that's ever happened to me. Like, I'm, that's not who I am. I'm not a person who's like, once, once again, I, I don't want to make that sound as if like crying makes you like weak or anything. It, it doesn't. But it's like, they were just like, that's not a thing I've like ever done. Right. But it's like, it just got to that point of built up of like stress and being like graded and just felt like you weren't doing a good job despite trying so hard every day every hour like even when you're not there like always trying to read and be on top of it and still feeling like you're just not doing enough because the person's just like you're, you're not right? they're just like you're, you're you're not you're doing a bad job you're not like getting the thing i want you to get it's really shitty and i i kind of thought about it later and when i was um just like thinking about it later i cried about it because it, it, the situation just sucked it was just a really upsetting thing to be a part of and to be around but it, yeah it, it's one of those things that i think was just a really I think a good example of, I, I think fundamentally an attending who I don't think is 
like an abusive person, but I think their actions still went over that line into abuse. Right, right. And I think that's an important distinction, right? Like it doesn't, you know, to an extent you're defined by your actions, but it doesn't define you as you are a blank person. But it also means that you have to be kind of on guard and on watch for your actions and how they affect other people. Yeah. Right. And so as I mean, I'm a junior resident, but, you know, at, I work with interns and I work with medical students and, you know, beyond the, yeah, obviously I'm not like yelling at, that's not who I am. I'm not like yelling at juniors or anything like that, but things like being cognizant and being considerate of the people below you as you rise through the ranks is just so important. And it's how you change the culture of medicine from the inside. Right. right. I mean, that, to your point, we have to change not by inches, but by miles. And a lot of that happens at, from a very grassroots ground level swell. Right. It, it's, it's hard to be like from an administrative standpoint, like don't do these things. Right? That, that, that isn't that's not really going to do anything, really. And I think it's about just cha- fundamentally. It's a thing we talk about like changing the culture. But I think fundamentally it's in your specific actions day by day, not doing the things, not perpetuating that cycle for the people below you to actually fundamentally change it. Um, so right. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily that hard to do. Right. It's just having constant empathy and awareness of your impact on other people around you. And, and the, the biggest lesson that I, I see people in medicine struggle with, and this is at all levels, I've seen it with medical students, I've seen it with fourth year medical students talking about first year medical students. Just because you learned something while undergoing a traumatic experience does not mean that the traumatic experience was necessary to how you learned it, right? If a, a thing sucked when you did it, and two years later, they talk about changing it. You shouldn't protest it on the grounds that you had to do it. So therefore, they yeah. have to do it. It is the lowest human instinct to say that I suffered. Therefore, you should suffer. Yeah, it's it's below human. It's <laughs> no, because fucking monkeys have empathy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, and the, the crazy part is, it is. I think there is some sort of natural sense of like fairness that you feel like, yeah. well, right? But but it's such a bad impulse. It's such a bad impulse. The thing is, the you have to fight it, and you have to say, no, it wasn't fair when it happened to me, and it won't be fair when it happens to the next person. There's no you, there's no scale where you're like, well, this person, I did it, so they have to do it, and so that the scale will be even. It just happened to you, and that sucks. And you can choose if that continues to happen to another right. person. That's, that's I mean, that's a, classic abuser-abusey relationship, right? And people create a cycle of abuse because when you get abused, you become habituated to that. And you think that that is the way in which you should treat people. I mean, pimping as a structure, as a, as a behavior pattern, is based on sort of an abusive past. You know, it's like we, we heard about the Socratic method and we learned how to weaponize it you know? like, <laughs> and you know i i do want to be clear i am somebody when i think it's done in what i call like friendly pimping where sure. it's sort of like when you get the question wrong you're not a bad person <laughs> yeah. you just you just got something wrong i actually learned very well from it because i like getting questions wrong makes me remember that i got them wrong and so i actually learned the correct thing but right. only in the setting in which i don't feel threatened sure. like when i feel like i'm threatened then there's like an adrenaline reaction and then you can't fucking remember anything. Yeah, yeah, because you're not meant to learn in fight or flight mode. <laughs> you're meant to run away or fight something. Right. That's right. it. <laughs> plus or minus shit in your pants, right? So like, <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, exactly, right? So it's like if you if if the environment you create is one where you feel like you're under siege, like it's a threat, then you're not going to learn. But if it feels like this is like a mild, I am asking you a bunch of questions, see if you can get them right. I'm going to sort of question the way you are thinking about this. 
and figure out if I can lead you to the right way of thinking about it. That's super valuable. And the best surgical teachers I've had, I've been people who do that. They ask me questions. I get some of them right. They ask me more questions. I get them wrong. And they figure out where I went astray. Yeah. Like, why didn't I know that thing? What, what was I thinking about in the incorrect way? And so it can be done very well, right? You can take things that are part of our structures and you can make them not shitty. You don't have to tear everything down, but you have to change it fundamentally. Right. And I, I think I, I can sense the pushback, right? And I know what I would say if I was an attendant, which is that there are stakes. And if we move a little way, bit away from pimping, right? If you are not doing a good job as a resident, there are active patient care stakes yes. involved, right? Go- going back to my story, for example, right? At least from that doctor's perspective, I was making a mistake that affected a patient. And so he felt it was appropriate to emphasize to me that that mistake had right. been made, right? And, and I, I understand that. I feel it. However, while medicine can never be a situation in which there aren't stakes your focus should be on emphasizing the stakes that there are, which is that there are patient stakes, and not creating new stakes, which is like, also, I will make you feel like shit if you don't get it right. Right. right? We don't need additional stakes. We already have them. <laughs> and I th- I'm sure there are some residents who are just like, they just don't give a fuck, basically. They're like, I don't sure. care, whatever. And that is different. But I think the majority of residents are people who, when they make a mistake, and I felt this deeply, you feel really bad. You don't need somebody else like kicking you to make you feel bad. Exactly. Like, I, I have made mistakes that have not like led to someone's death, but led to people who haven't gotten the right scans on time, maybe a delay in care. Everyone's done it, and you feel really shitty like for days and or weeks and or months and or forever. <laughs> Medicine is such that the, sometimes the right decision will make you feel bad. Like I've had people with uh, with coronary artery disease who had to stay in the hospital over major holidays because they were waiting for a cabbage. And that was the right thing to do. And I felt like shit. I, I ended up talking to this guy. This was on Christmas. And I talked to this guy for like hours. He told me all about how he used to make tamales for his family. And he wasn't going to get to do that this year because he was stuck in the fucking hospital with me. <laughs> some fucking goober who <laughs> put on some scrubs. It's decided he was a doctor. I mean, it's just like the tragedy of that, right? The the thing is, like, I already know that it's bad. If, if you feel that your resident is acting recklessly or making decisions cavalierly and doesn't think about the actual stakes of them, then obviously, obviously push back on that stuff. But if it seems like maybe your resident just didn't get a chance to study one specific thing, like, they don't need to be treated as though they killed somebody. <laughs> You know, the stakes aren't always life and death, though they are admittedly sometimes life and death. Right. Yeah. I'll briefly say, people talk about a lot in surgery that the sort of the attitude of the OR carries over because in the OR, it is very moment by moment. There are decisions just be decisive, like things you make mistakes, they can actually lead to complications immediately. Once again, I, I've been with extremely competent top of their field surgeons who are normal people in the OR. Right. They do great right. surgeries with great outcomes. And no one leaves the case feeling like the things we did made us bad people. <laughs> right, right. The thing is, like, it's not necessary. Be, it's not necessary to be a good surgeon. You, you can always that. Come, claim that it's a high stress environment and that you need to be impactful and make a point. But at the end of the day, there are people who are doing it normally. <laughs> right. So, like, it obviously is possible. That's all I'm <laughs> saying. Yeah. 
<laughs> and you can claim that your outcomes are that much better, but I would be skeptical of that. <laughs> I'd be very skeptical. And oftentimes it is the case that the people who are the best are also the most mellow because they, they have confidence in their abilities to to correct anything you might fuck up and therefore right. they they yeah. teach with a sort of air yeah. of like okay i'm gonna let you work i'm gonna i'm gonna let you do it uh and i have faith in my abilities to assess whether or not you're making a mistake right yeah or you're uh, it's like if, if you as an attending don't have that maybe don't pass your insecurities on to me in the form of beratement <laughs> heavy yeah heavy well, yeah so I, mean, I think at the end of it obviously as of many things i don't think we have necessarily concrete solutions but i do come back to the idea that part of the way this changes is that we change it because right now we are junior residents but in a few years we'll be senior residents and then a few years after that we'll be attendings and obviously that means everyone has to do it right everyone in our cohort has to be the type of people who don't perpetuate that cycle i think there are times when you're stressed and things are shitty and it's easy to snap at people but i think trying to keep it in perspective or if you do snap apologizing Sometimes you snap and get mad. You're you're a human. It happens. Yeah. You're also allowed to apologize. It doesn't make you like a weak person to apologize. Yeah, despite what sort of general American discourse might teach you, it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to admit that you're wrong. <laughs> and it's okay to apologize. Everybody should learn the... Uh, man, I, there's a more snappy name for it, but there's a, a four components to a good apology. Go take it as your homework this time. Look them up. Just, like, familiarize yourself with the four components of an apology. It'll help you in real life, too, <laughs> but also in your medical life. And know that, yeah, as, as Samir, you were saying, you don't always have the power to change things as they are happening in the moment, but you, you can remember your power to change things as they will happen. Uh, the future, you, we're, all, we're all able to change the future. So I think, I think this has been a mandatory wellness session. Yeah, guys. Uh, so make sure to do some yoga. Uh, <laughs> drink plenty of water. Sign in on the attendance sheet. God, if you guys didn't sign in on the attendance sheet, I don't there's even a, know. There's a QR code where you can rate the usefulness of this mandatory wellness session. No one will look at the results, but you can rate it, though. Yeah, yeah. And remember, we have an email address. Uh, it's mandatorywellnesssession at gmail.com. Send questions, comments. Anything you feel like, I guess, pictures of cookies. You can follow us on Instagram at MWS Podcast and on Facebook. Search Mandatory Wellness Session. I'm sure it'll pop up. Probably. Uh, <laughs> Seems and like we also thing. have a website that you can find at, varied, at those various links. And of course, please subscribe in whatever podcasting app you listen to. As always, our theme song is Nothing Slash Anything by Westy Reflector. Thank you guys for listening. Bye.